that time of the week again. It's Flat Out RC Podcast time, the podcast that is dedicated to all things radio control flight. We're talking planes, helis, and drones. My name is Andrew Sill, and I'm the host of this program. Thanks once again for joining me, especially those that are subscribed to the Flat Out RC Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, whether you're on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts, there's a whole bunch of places now you can get this podcast. There's no excuses at all. But if you subscribe, it just means that uh, you're going to be notified when a new episode comes out. They do come out every Wednesday. Now, if you're new to the podcast, generally we have a special guest. And today we do have another great guest from up north in Australia, from Queensland, the president of the MAAQ, Michael Hobson. So we're going to have a good chat with him uh so that is coming up but before we get into that let's take a look at what's been happening around the traps well what has been happening around the traps and i think we can we can describe 2020 as not much happening around the traps and uh after our interview i'm going to talk a bit about promotion of the hobby marketing and what's going on in the world of uh, aero modeling um, but there's not a lot happening except events being cancelled there's another event up in Queensland that I just noticed was cancelled and I think that's going to be the norm now for the next I don't know at least till the end of 2020 we're all hoping that 2021 brings us a vaccine to this coronavirus and we can all move on and then we'll have a nice vibrant community going on uh, down here in Victoria, in Australia, where I live, we're still in lockdown, but we're a few weeks away, uh, but we still don't know what's happening. We still don't know whether we'll continue to be locked down or continue to, to be restricted. It looks like we're going to have to wear masks a lot. And I'm, I'm a glasses wearer. I've got bad eyesight. And I'll tell you what, when I put a mask on and go outside at the moment, being winter here and cold, my glasses fog up straight away. So I don't think I'll be able to go to a flying field with a mask and fly because I'll crash. I definitely might be able to see things. So, uh, a bit disappointed at the moment with the whole situation, but getting there. Uh, as far as new products goes, it hasn't been much. We talked about the Hangar 9 pits in the last episode. That's probably the biggest uh, release that's come out of Horizon Hobby recently. Uh, we know that Extreme Flight have got a couple of new planes um, that are now out. Pilot RC is always working on something. And beyond that, we don't hear much from anyone else. But I think the biggest news is that there's not much still happening and that uh, I just can't wait for the event season to come back and we can uh, share some great news. So stay tuned. There'll always be something to say, just not a lot at the moment. Now we move on to what I call my favorite part of the podcast. That's where I get to have a chat with a special guest. And today's guest is Michael Hobson, all the way from up north in Australia in a state called Queensland. And Michael is known as an avid aero modeler, uh, especially in the aer- aerobatics, uh, been involved in the uh, IMAC competition scene for, for quite a long time. Also on the admin side was president of the Scale Aeros, uh association that manages the imac scene in australia still involved with the imac administration i think he's a representative for the age pacific region and but now also is the president of the MAAQ, the 
M uh, you know, our our peak body here in Australia for model flying, Queensland chapter. So he's El Presidente up there. So I really wanted to get uh, no, I've have, had have a few chats with Michael over the years, and he's a good good guy. And I really wanted to get him on board and see what's happening up in Queensland, learn a bit more about him, and uh, just generally have a chat. So here is my chat with the man Michael Hobson. Michael Hobson, thanks for joining me here on the Flat Out RC podcast. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, my pleasure, mate. Well, uh, over the years, we've had chats. I've met you face-to-face down at the IMAC Nationals. So uh, we go back a little way, but I don't know where this whole aero modeling journey started for you. Can you tell me, where did it all begin? Mate, it's um, probably a pretty typical story um, in terms of how I started and I had, a, I had a passion as a kid for, well, my dream was as a kid to have a radio control model. And I guess that came from, I think, Christmas one year, probably when I was 10, 11. Mum and Dad bought me a Aeroflight uh, Nomad. Um, oh, sorry, Nimbus. Nimbus it was. It was a, basically like a 30-inch 30, 30 chuck lighter. So it was a, a box of sticks uh, glued together with the old uh, balsa cement uh, covered in in tissue and dope, and take down the park and and throw it. And that was a didn't build it myself by any stretch of the imagination. In in reality, I probably sat there watching Dad do it um, in great part. And and I think that's probably one of my, you know, the 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 thing that's you know fondest about it was that you know early interaction doing doing a project with, with my with my father. He wasn't a modeler himself. I think he'd played around with models as a kid but once again never you know had the opportunity to really get into it and after you know going through that experience of 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 building that first model um i just craved um you know getting getting something bigger and rc and you know sadly um you know i saved up saved up uh uh my savings and i i bought a um uh uh Aeroflight Hustler started building that. I saved up and bought a uh, 40 FP motor, and but you know this is 1987, 88. Could never, could never dream of affording probably radio control gear. So that really went went nowhere and probably got put to one side. And then it was probably oh maybe 15, 16, 17 years later after I started work and um, I think I may have even been married at the time, much to my uh, wife's uh, surprise when I started talking about radio control models. We'd been out to to dinner one night, and somebody over at a dinner party had mentioned um, RC models, and I thought, "Hey, I could I could get back into that. I could I could um, I could revisit that dream." And um, yeah, a couple of months later, probably after a bit of um, yeah googling on the internet and working out uh, where to where to go from there, I uh, ended up down at the Tink Alpha Club in Brisbane and. Uh, signed up for some lessons and I was on my way to learning to fly RC models. And in fact, my first trainer, I got dad to send down that 40 FP motor. And that was the motor that went in my, my first trainer sort of, yeah, maybe 15, 20 years later. So, um, didn't go to waste. Yeah, that was, didn't, didn't yeah. go to waste, mate. So that was probably 15 years ago when I actually started flying RC and, um, have probably been doing it ever since. So, uh, yeah, loving every minute of it. Do you know what's really interesting out of all the people that I've interviewed for this podcast, your story is extremely close to mine. I had, I got given the Nomad. Like when you said Nomad, I went, oh, wait a second. And we live in parallel lives here. But I, <laughs> I got given the Nomad and I remember watching my dad build a lot of it. And I remember it didn't last very long once I started to throw it around. But um, 
exactly the same story, almost almost identical. Except I didn't have a, a hustler. But isn't it amazing the role that Aeroflight played in in the aero modeling scene in Australia? That I think everybody oh, that started out had an Aeroflight kit at some point. Absolutely, absolutely. And I I think you know what Brian Simpson was trying to do to bring bring the brand back or recreate some of those kits. I mean, it's it's one of those things that it had its time and place in the eighties. And this is one of the things I I talk to people about. You know, in the 80s as a kid, if you were passionate about, you know, aircraft and all that, your options were, you know, build a model, get into that. And that's that's one of the things that probably, you know, I wasn't in the RC clubs then, but I sort of picture it as the the heyday of, of radio control modelling and building and all that sort of stuff. Whereas today there's just so many other things and, and the, the need for instant gratification amongst kids and that and the options of flight simulators and computer games and all those sort of things. Um it makes it a hard sell these days, I think, uh, to to sort of convince kids to to build something and and you know especially something that could be uh, make one mistake and it's uh, back to being a, a you know plastic bag full of balsa. Yeah, hundred percent agree. I think that the, the times have just changed and and like you said back then we didn't have any alternatives. We didn't have ARFs. Um, we didn't have computers and simulators and things like that to 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 learn how to fly. So. The time commitment was a lot greater, and and I, I suppose nowadays the average um, aero model has a, a, a shed full of aeroplanes. And I wonder whether back then, whether it was the same or not, whether you had a prized model that you looked after as much as you could and kept it in great nick. But when you think about it, the way that I look at it is, things actually got better. The the world addressed the issues and the challenges that we had back then. You'd have to spend months building a model and then you could potentially crash it the first time you took it out. And now we have foamies, we have, you know, Horizon Hobby with all their models, We've got safe technology and auto land, you, you name it. It's going to end up being just autopilot, I think, which I'm not saying it's great, but it's just the reality of the situation that we have to deal with, which uh, which makes it very, very different. And I don't know about you. Do, do, do you like and do you enjoy building models now or not? I, I do look. I um, I've got a. Uh, I, I started building a uh, a chipmunk, a sort of thirty percent um, kit chipmunk, which is it's stalled at the moment with the work and everything else getting in in the way. But um, it's certainly sitting there, and I, I'm going to get back to it. And in the meantime, there's ARFs that have popped up, and and when I say ARFs, I mean you know composite models and things like that. So for my sort of competitive competitive era modeling, yeah. um, but. You know, the idea of building, the idea of, you know, like I see the stuff, some of the guys like Peter Goff, who you interviewed last week, or yeah. watching, uh, there's a great build thread, um, or at least a few photos on Facebook from the likes of Pete Goldsmith and the, some of the stuff he's building. I love that idea that, the, you know, it's so different to what I do professionally day to day, you know, getting out there and, and sort of building and working on something with your hands. Um, love it. Um, and, you know... <sighs> Not that not that I'm a great builder or, or anything like that, but just trying to continue the skills those guys have. I mean, it's it's uh, or you know not continue, but you know copy some of the skills or try and try out some of the techniques you see these guys doing and and what they're producing is just amazing. So I've got all the respect in the world for those you know what I sort of regard as as the true modelers, the guys that are you know creating their models. Uh, whether it be from a kit or whether it be from um, literally a scratch-built couple of photos. I mean, I think uh, the guys that are doing that are amazing. And, you know, you talked about the hobby changing and it's, it's you know, how we capture those skills and pass those skills on given 
what we're now confronted with in terms of how people get involved in the hobby, the availability of ARFs. Um, you know, I, I'd hate to see those sort of skills disappear, but, you know, us as a, as a, as a group and recognising the changing reality of the environment and the external factors, um, I don't think we've quite nailed it yet. So, you know, you talk about things improving in terms of ARFs and, and things like that. Yeah, I agree they have to a certain extent. And it's gone beyond that. It's gone beyond, yep, you know, when I learned to fly, which was only probably 15 years ago, 20 years ago, you went along to the club and they said to you, hey, go buy a 40-size trainer, go buy a 40-size you know, motor, get a get the best best uh, transmitter you can you know, afford. So you go down, you get your six-channel JR or your Futaba, whatever you, you liked. Um, and that was great advice back then. And that was the way everyone went about it. And everyone sort of rocked it up, up at a club or at the local hobby store. And probably, you know, we all got the same advice. These days, I think people... 99% of the time, they're probably not rocking up the local club. They've already looked at, you know, Google. They've gone on to one of the online retailers, bought something, bought a radio, bought this. And maybe then, maybe they then go to a club. And it's that first interaction there where you've got, the, shall we say, more traditional aero modelers who have an expectation about how somebody learns to fly. I think we we have to be more welcoming and open to the fact that, you know, people are now coming to us with, what, not what we regard as the traditional traditional pathway into aero modelling, but we've got to seize on them. They've still got the passion. We've just got to seize on them and 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 you know bring them into the tent rather than um, scoff and 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 turn them away. So, you know, the hobby's evolving, um, and we've got to sort of still though work out how it is we introduce and keep people aero modelling. Yeah, and it's it's there are challenges, and I, and I dare say back in the eighties there were challenges as well. Actually, what was interesting is. Uh, I've written about this. I don't know whether I mentioned the podcast, but I a mate of mine gave me a whole bunch of magazines from the the mid sixties, like sixty five to early seventies, uh, UK magazines, and we're talking about that era of radio control just coming in and build your own radio control systems and all this kind of stuff. And they're amazing magazines. It's ninety percent ads, but the way that people wrote back then is just amazing. And back then, there are articles about how the art of building was dying. And so I think it's something that um, I think with building back, even back in the eighties when you had to build kits, there were a lot of people just building Aeroflight hustlers. And then there were the group of people that were building the beautiful scale planes. And what I find nowadays is we've still sort of got that in a kind of way where we've still got this core group that love building and you've got to be wired that way. And I'm a bit like you, like I know that when I retire and I've got more time on my hands, I'm going to spe- I'm going to build. I'd love to build the kit. Now you mentioned a chipmunk. My dream is to build a super chipmunk. I just loved them back in the eighties, seeing them, and I want a big one too. I don't want a small one. I want a big like hundred cc. But I want, that's what that's going to be my kit build. And you know, at the moment, like you, we're busy working, and it's hard to find that time and that, that to make that commitment to build. And so ARFs is uh, and the flying side of things is probably what I'm more into at this stage of my life. But I just can't wait to get back. But as far as you were talking about that losing the skill, I think I think we are, but and then on the other hand, we can pass on those skills uh, really easily thanks to the internet. And there's so many videos out there on how to do things, but you've got to, I suppose the biggest thing is you've got to have that interest and that desire to want to spend the time to learn. And 
Uh, I think sometimes we take it for granted how much we actually know, though, Michael. I think that you know, even building ARFs are little things that we've got to tinker with that we just do. You know, it's like second nature now because we've done it so many times and learnt through experience. Oh, look, absolutely. Yeah, there's that there's that level of unconscious knowledge where you know, and I guess it becomes apparent when you you help somebody out who hasn't built a particular model before, and you look in there and you go, "Whoa, why did you do that?" You yeah. know, like, yeah, no, it's um, yeah. But we're always learning, you know. So that's one of the the joys of the hobby, I guess. That's true. Now I'm going to come back and we're going to talk a bit more about the hobby and the state of it and your role as pre- president of the MWAQ. But before that, you started out. You got you got your hustler going. Um, then. Uh, you you got into aerobatics, right? Uh, you know, I know you as an aerobatics guy. Now, do you see yourself as is that your main passion, aerobatics? Oh, look, it it has been. I guess one of the things about look when I when I sort of got flying, the the dream model, to be honest, was probably a you know one twenty size warbird, and I thought why would why would anyone want anything else other than like a nice you know seventy something inch um, you know seventy eighty inch uh, Spitfire Hurricane something like that like and that was that was where my passion was and I've I've still got you know uh, ESM kit that I, I bought and and uh, it's it's sort of sitting on top of a cupboard at the moment I've never quite got back to it but um, yeah I guess um, one of the one of the guys at my local club Tingalpa. Um, once I'd been there for a while, he was an aerobatics guy and he had what at the time was the biggest aeroplane I thought you could possibly have, which was a 2.3 metre comp half extra with a, uh, must, it would have been a DA50cc motor back in it, back, back at that stage. And, and that was awesome. And, and this is guys, a, you know, uh, a good pilot, you know, doing aerobatics and, and that pursuit of the perfection. And, um, I thought, you know, I'd gotten a little bit bored with just uh, flying around my uh, my trainer and I'd sort of started to get a few aerobatic ARFs, nothing anywhere near that big, you know, 60, 65 inch. And it was, I guess, looking for something a little bit more in my flying, you know, a bit of a challenge. Um, and I guess that's where it clicked for me with aerobatics. So, you know, when we all start flying, you know, you, you, you're searching for that um, – sense of achievement you know like so if you you know imagine the first time you went out and you you did your first solo landing and you sort of walked away and went yep nailed it you know happy with that i feel good i've achieved something and you know you know i don't mind club flying but the flying aerobatics and trying to do you know pursuit of perfection uh and doing a good flight there's a there's an element of satisfaction about that and i guess that's what competitive flying aerobatics gives me um so look I, you know, and I think that's one of the, that's the important thing and why I value the special interest groups. The fact that, yeah, we all sort of learn in our local club and that's great, but what is offered by the special interest groups, whether it's pylon, whether it's, you know, racing, whether it's scale, whether it's uh, aerobatics, it's, you know, it's that little extra bit that, that keeps you interested, that keeps you passionate about the sport. And um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm big on supporting those guys. If guys want to come into aerobatics, you know, the, you know, I really enjoy teaching guys about aerobatics. You know, I'm never going to be a top aerobatics pilot. I mean, I got into the hobby too late, you know, like it's for me when I'm flying aerobatics, it's not about muscle memory, like the top guys, like, you know, the Aaron Gales or the Chris Brislins of the world. For me, I have to think about everything I'm doing with the, with my thumbs, but um, you know, it's, it's, 
you know, I'm never going to be a top pilot, but I certainly enjoy competing in it. I certainly enjoy the camaraderie of a group of guys that all sort of, you know, pursuing the same thing. Um, so I think, you know, the special interest groups and and those particular, um, not necessarily competitive, but, you know, whether it's a warbirds group or any of that sort of stuff, I think that's something that really needs to be supportive, supported. And I think it's important because it retains people in the hobby as well. You know, so once you find your passion in the hobby, I, I really think it's there's there's something for everyone in the hobby. Once you've given it a go and you're sort of going, yeah, I enjoy this, but I want something more. I'd say to people, yeah, have a look around the special interest groups and see what, you know, see what appeals to you. Yeah, that's, a good, that's good advice. I think uh, I'm a bit like you. I'm an aerobatics fan and you, you, you find your little your group and it does add something to the hobby. And like you said, it keeps me involved. You know, I, I got a phone call today from, you know, a flying mate who lives in another state. He was driving a scraper and he's on a farm and he gave me a call whilst he was driving around just to have a chat. And so it's now the, the hobby for me is not just about flying the aerobatic planes or any model. It's also the people that I've met. And, and a lot of those strong relationships come through that special interest group being aerobatics or whatever. And, and like you, you know, if you're into gliders, great. If you're into scale, great. But it really is a great way to, to yeah, keep, you, keep you active in the hobby and on various levels. You, you you have competed in iMac. How far up did, uh, are the iMac chain have you got so far? I'm uh, I'm pretty much uh, we've got intermediate. Is uh, we've got basic sportsman, intermediate, advanced, and unlimited. Uh, I'm I'm pretty uh, solidly uh, bedded down in uh, intermediate. Intermediates uh, sort of become the gentleman's class. So we've got a few guys there who've gone up higher and have come back down to intermediate. But uh, yeah, I uh, I. Would love to think that I might one day progress a bit further up the chain, but um, until I have uh, a lot more hours in my week to go out and uh, punch holes in the sky, uh, <laughs> that's about where I'm at. Yeah, it's true. It's, it's all about time, you know. If, if, you, if you want to go out there and, you know, talking to Aaron Gall, the amount of practice he did when he, especially when he was younger, you know, to go to Tucson and things like that, and he was getting out three days a week. Well, I'll tell you what, if I could get out three times in a month, I'd probably be doing extremely well. But do you ever get onto the simulator at all? Look, um, simulator, yeah, look, it's all good in theory. Um, you know, I've got one there and I've sort of constantly gone, oh, well, I should, uh, I should get on the simulator and practice a bit with that and sort of build up muscle memory and learn the sequence and all those things. But Ah, look, no, it just doesn't excite me as much as actually standing out there in the field and um, and actually flying the model. So, um, you know, look, I think it's a good tool to to learn. Um, and I know the top guys, you know, like do, you know, supplement the hours by, by using the simulator, but, um, you know. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not. It's not something I'm a regular at. I can't. I can't uh, say that. That's yeah. for sure. I think that the the simulators I find the majority of people that are actually on simulators are the the freestyle aerobatic 3D guys because they're trying to get some muscle memory around some tricky maneuvers, flying low down, and that kind of stuff. But I've tried to. I've I've learned IMAX sequences actually on the simulator just to drum it into my brain so I can call for myself in a kind of way, you know, because I got into flying IMAX sequences just not to compete, just to, to improve my flying. And so I get on the simulator and memorize the uh, the sequence so that I could just do it by myself and not have to have someone calling for me. And, uh, and uh, but yeah, I, I get on a bit with every week I try to get on and uh, 
but it's more you know practicing knife edge circles and things like that and rolling harriers all the stuff i need to perfect so slightly so but i must say we were t- going back to very early on when we were talking about you know that experience going to a club i i came i came back into the hobby and got the did the traditional 40 you know 40 size nitro boomerang trainer went to and joined a club you know did all the right things that we traditionally did but the difference was that i'd spent about five years prior to that on and off playing around with the simulator and when i so when i got to actually fly a plane my first flight i took off and landed and literally landed down the middle of the runway flying some other guy's plane and i was mode two so there was nobody at the club that was a mode two instructor they gave me this other guy dave who ended up being a great mate and was an awesome bloke and he just handed the transmitter to me and i could actually fly a plane on the back of i'm talking basic stuff i wasn't doing any you know aerobatics but I could actually fly a plane on the back of the simulator, and they were re- the the instructors were really concerned about how quick I was mo- progressing. And I'm like, "Well, what do you want me to do? You're like, slow down." It's like I can't help it. I'd been practicing on the simulator, so my orientation control was really good. But then there's, you know, as you know, there's all these little little finesse things. But um, but anyway, we got through that phase, and then uh, I saw Edo Segim and thought, oh, "I want to fly aerobatics and be like him," which oh, look, I can't yeah. be. And, <laughs> but anyway. and that's the thing, you know, we we all. I mean, that was probably the one thing that, you know, settled it for me getting into um, IMAC was, uh, I think, about 2008, the uh, Desert Aircraft guys in Brisbane uh, ran a comp called the the DA Challenge, which was up at um, Coulomb, um, the original Coulomb field. And, you know, had Jason Shulman um, over here at the yeah. time. And, uh, you know, they, what I went up there, didn't really appreciate what IMAC was all about, went up and actually saw the freestyle, um, which blew me away. But, um you know, once again, I was probably never going to be talented enough to do that, but certainly even just the sequence work in iMac was, yeah, it, it, that got me hooked and got me sort of moving into large models and bigger and bigger models, much to my wife's um, <laughs> That's That's what <laughs> we do. Or... We get bigger. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's funny, like, it's, again, another recurring thing. A lot of people get, see someone that's a gun, like a Shulman, and, and that just, you know, changes the direction in there in the hobby or just deepens it even further. And before you know it, you know, I used to think that a 30cc size plane was big. You know, when I got my first 30cc, I'm like, look at the size of this thing. And then I've got 200ccs now sitting in my trailer going, yep, yeah, they're pretty big. And But wait a second, I could go bigger. I need a three meter now, but I don't and I'm not going to get one. But but uh, but yeah, it's, it's funny how... Yeah, but, uh, they they just, fly nice, Andrew. They that, fly nice, mate. That's what I was going to say. Now, for anyone out there that you know may be a bit daunted about flying a bigger model, what would you say? Oh, look, I, I think it's one of those things you got to be ready for. It's it's like we 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 sort of said about how you know it's great now we've got all these ARFs available and and that's great. Uh, and the price of those things, you know, the motors, the availability of the radio gear, the servos, all that's readily available um so in some ways yes that stuff is now accessible um but likewise because there's not the barrier to to go into it um and more people are going into it but there's a few there who occasionally don't have the skills that are required so you know if you're flying around a 20 kilo model uh if it all goes to custard that's 
got potential to cause a bit of damage there. So I guess that's the the importance of the heavy model inspection process that the MAAA has, for example, where you know there's a there's a, a second set of eyes to look over the model. There's a somebody there who's an experienced uh, flyer to sort of just make sure you you you're sort of able to handle the model. Um, you know, if you if you got your gold wings, then you know get out there, fly some iMac, and if you want to be flying you know, the big stuff, the three meter, 200 cc, 170 cc models. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but do it the right way. You know, that's that's the thing. Do it the right way. Appreciate that, you know, you're going to have to spend a few dollars getting good quality gear, the 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 right, um, you know, rating of servos and the good, you know, the right quality of, of gear that you need to do it safely. And uh, if you're prepared to do that and, you know, or, or put up your hand and get some good advice, Look, it's it's great. I mean, I was up at a uh, this weekend, got away to Tin Can Bay to go up there, and I don't know what it was like down where you are, but it was blowing an absolute gale on the weekend, and we were there for a pattern comp, you know, which was um, you know five kilo two meter models, you know, but we stopped flying because the wind was just unflyable. But I thought, oh well, I've got my iMac model here, which is you know three point two meters, weighs four times as much. It's probably a smidge over twenty kilos. In winds that were unflyable with most models, happily to get taken up and have a fly. So you know, bigger does fly better. Um, you know, but there's a responsibility that goes with it as well because you know, if, if it goes wrong, one, it's going to cost you, but it's also got a lot of. There's the potential for it to you know hurt somebody if if you if you're not careful. So yeah, like different. like everything we do with modelling, it's you know you got to you got to mitigate the risk. And you got to be responsible with um with what you do you know for your own sake and for the the sake of the hobby on the whole. Yeah, it's true. Now you you not only started competing in IMAC, but you ended up sort of on the administration side, uh, working your way up as the president of the uh, Scale Aeros. Um, association here in australia the, the the association responsible for imac competition how did you get into that administration side oh look um <laughs> it's uh I, I don't know but it probably says a bit too much about me that you know it seems to be i i can't help but to get involved in the uh, organizational side of these things but um and to be honest it's probably you know as i said i'm never going to be the top pilot but i can i can at least help out from a administrative point of view so i started out as the uh took on the role of secretary of that uh, particular organization i think in the end i spent seven years on the committee the last two as as president um so as you said that's the the um the body in australia that that runs scale aerobatics competitions it's an mAAA special interest group um every year we ran a you know, national championships this year unfortunately we've had to cancel it but uh, last year, the culmination of, I guess, of those seven years for me was to see our national championships actually run as an Asia-Pacific championships. And we uh, had uh, 70 competitors, which is or 72 competitors, which is probably about 20 more than we've ever had before. We had over a dozen international competitors. We had guys like Kel Reef Schneider, Sasha Shikoni, um, flump come here and compete. And that was, that was, yeah, that was the ultimate for me to have... As you said, guys seeing the absolute best guys in the world fly and compete and and be inspired. And, and you know, we've got some young guys coming through who probably had an opportunity to see uh, the sort of pilots that they wouldn't normally see in Australia, um, going toe to toe with the best Australian pilots. And um, yeah, that was that was the the culmination of my time on the ASAA. 
I'm, I'm still active. Um, I currently am the Asia Pacific Regional Director on the International uh, IMAC Committee. Uh, so I get to uh, sit around uh, once a month with a few of my American um, colleagues and uh, representation from Europe and Central America. So we're sort of planning how we coordinate IMAC internationally to make it an internet, well, it is an international class event. So, you know, like we fly an unknown, you know, every weekend, which is, you know, 10 manoeuvres you're given, but you don't get to practice it, you go out, you fly it, you get judged on it. Well, that's written by an international group in every IMAC competition around the world that weekend, we will all fly that same unknown sequence and things like that. So, um, you know, there's, um, you know, we're not on our own, you know, that's, that's, I guess the point I'm making is that we're part of something bigger, which uh, has its own rewards. And hopefully I can sort of uh, work with, um, you know, some of the guys in Japan, some of the guys in, in New Zealand to keep that Asia Pacific region strong and healthy and hopefully we can uh, back it up with another Asia Pacific Championships in a couple of years time. Yeah, that'd be great. Now, you know, just talking about that whole Asia region and IMAC, we know that uh, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, as you mentioned, you know, have been have had IMAC running for a while. What's happening throughout in, in other regions of, of Asia in regards to IMAC? Is it, is it, is it people taking to it or, uh, you know, it's a bit of a struggle? Look, I think it's a bit of a struggle. It's a struggle in terms of cost, um, size available of flying fields, things like that. Um, you've got um, freestyle, um, very much dominating or 3D style flying in some of the Asian countries. Um, so, yeah, it's a process. We had competitors from India at the Asia Pacific Championships. Um, Harshal um, Main from India, he's a great young pilot. He's sort of doing what he can to, to build and promote it in, in the subcontinent. Um, so look, you know, China is obviously the booming market um, and, you know, you've been over there to the big show and, and things like that. IMAX not strong, but, um, you know, I think the top freestyle guys, the guys that do attract all the attention on YouTube and that, they're, they're all started, had their roots in, uh, in scale aerobatics or precision flying of some sort. So, um, you know. It, it is what it, it is, what it is. Um, you know, you can only do what you can do. There's obviously the language barrier as well, but, um, you know, it's, uh, I'm, I'm optimistic, Andrew. I, I think that like, just from my experience being in China, I think that eventually could happen. And the reason why yep. I say that is that uh, they've got, they've got a pattern scene happening in China, which is sort of coordinated, but there's not a strong network of anyone coordinating on the scale aerobatic side. Uh, you know, the event that I go to is is driven by one man, Frank Liu. He organises it. He set up the structure. Now, Frank himself competed in, um, you know, in F3A uh, and he, he values precision flying, as do some of the other people at the event. But his event is around 3D, but they're given a sequence that ha and they are judged on their precision. And what, like you mentioned, a lot of the top freestylers have competed in IMAC and for the sole purpose of improving their precision because it makes everything look better when you can fly precisely. And then, you know, my good friend Edo, he did it and he flew pattern for a little bit of time. He didn't love it, but he did it because he knew he needed it. Uh, Martin Brammuller, Sasha Ciccone, all these guys are, uh, Jace Ducia, they all flew IMAC and they didn't just fly it for, you know, a few events. They they did it for a number of years just to improve their precision. So I always say to people, and I've, I've been speaking it, 
it's far and wide that you know if you want to improve your flying whether you're a scale pilot or, or whatever it doesn't matter go and learn some IMAX sequences if you want to go and compete go and compete but there's nothing better for improving your flying ability I believe than getting out there and doing something like Patton or, or IMAC I really do oh look uh um a freestyle sequence, you know, set to music is all about precision. You know, I mean, it, it is absolutely being able to control that plane. And, yeah. you know, when you when you watch the guys, you know, rotating their point rolls to the music and all those sort of things, there's, you know, it's a real skill and, it, and it's all built on precision as opposed to sort of just getting out there and stick banging. Yeah. And, and, and there's this misconception I find, especially here in Australia, that the 3D flies when I was involved with some of that 3D scene and whatever years back, there was this misconception that we were just slapping sticks in corners and it's uh, it couldn't be further from the truth because like you said what makes a flight looks good look good is precision purposeful movements and i once asked ito segev i said to him when you fly your freestyle sequence and this guy flew at you know world world champ level kind of thing are you in control so in other words you're just slapping the sticks and then just hoping that you've released the sticks at the right time for the plane to be level and he said, no, I'm flying the plane. He said, every point of that manoeuvre, I'm actually in control and flying it. And that came from years and years and years and years of practice. But also that commitment to precision. He would say to me in his freestyle routines to music, he would literally practice one manoeuvre of the sequence at a time and would not move to the next one in practice until he perfected the precision of that, 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 that first one kind of thing. And it was all about precision. So if you think that 3D flying or freestyle aerobatics is about you know, bashing sticks, oh, it's just not, not at all. Now, so you, you became president. You did some really good stuff. And you're right, that that, that Dolby event was uh, Dolby, 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 Dolby. It was Dolby. Uh, yeah, <laughs> oh, I'm Victoria. We don't get up to Dolby very often. But uh, actually, speaking of that, I was with Sasha Ciccone before that event. Like he flew literally from China. We're in China together. And he flew from China to Brisbane. And he goes, oh, what's it like? And I said, well, it's nothing like here. I said, get ready for the heat. Get ready for the flies. And, I was going to say the flies. He didn't He didn't like the flies. I didn't think the flies were that bad. I warned him. Were, I yeah. warned him. Now, Sasha's a good Italian boy. And and you, I believe you tried to convince him that pineapple on pizza is acceptable. And I, he, yeah, he can't get his head around it. No. No. Now, so you, 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 you did a great job at IMAC, but... Then, you know, you're a glutton for punishment. You've now gone and become president of the MAAA chapter up in Queensland, the MAAQ. Why? Oh, good good question. Look, I guess, you know, it all, it all sort of fits together for me. So, you know, the special interest groups, um, the IMAC and all that, they've got, to, they've got to stay strong by bringing people in. And, uh, you know, for, from established flyers, convincing them to come in. And in order for that to happen, you've got to have this good pool of, um, you know, you've got to be strong at every level. So your club flyers have got to be healthy. You've got to have, you know, new talent coming in at the clubs or new interest coming in at the clubs to feed the special interest groups and everything like that. So it all, you know, it's an ecosystem. It's one dependent on the other. It's, um, you know, and, and you know, all these people flying, you've also got to have good support in terms of your retailers and all the all the other participants in the industry. So, you know, I I sort of um I sort of don't like using the terminology stepped away from IMAC, but I'd I'd done my stint and there was other good people on the committee with ideas coming along. So you don't want to sort of, you know, when it's time to sort of let somebody else have a chance and sort of maybe do something different, retain, you know, maintain passion, um, it was the right time for me. And 
at the same time, the MAAA, I guess there needed to be a little bit of um, generational change there. We'd had a, a group of guys who had been doing it for a long period of time. Um, and, you know, I, I don't want to be critical, but it was to a certain extent stagnating or the relevance of the MAAQ uh, to the local clubs um, was sort of not particularly high. So, you know, there was, I, I came onto the committee as vice president um, due to a number of things. The uh, president had a, uh, had to take some time out for some complications of some uh, surgery that he had had. So I, I, it was called upon to sort of step up to president, which was was great. And um, through, you know, various other um, circumstances, with you know, there's a few other changes there. But I guess it gave me an opportunity to sort of present a bit of a, um, I don't want to say vision, but I guess that's what it was, to sort of sit back and, and reassess what the MAAQ was doing, what it meant to the clubs, and I guess I, I had the opportunity in the last couple of months and sort of it was sort of we had our AGM this week where we said to the clubs, well, we want to put in place some better systems to support what the clubs are doing, support the clubs in terms of getting new members in the door, support the clubs to promote the hobby and um, support the clubs to grow and develop their facilities and how they train people and all those sort of things. So, you know, from a budget sense, we, we we trimmed back the committee a little bit. We made some money available to the clubs to run events. And we've got some criteria around that where, you know, it's got to be a public display. It's got to be about promoting the hobby. It's got to be about getting new people in. And um, that's really my sort of mantra for the foreseeable future is, is raising the profile of the hobby and, and trying to support clubs to bring members in. And I really think it is about um, clubs. I mean, clubs are the level at which people come along, they join a club, they interact with the club. It's the club that, you know, teaches them how to fly or supports them, you know, puts the infrastructure in place to support them how to fly. Um, so, you know, the MAAQ, from my perspective, had lost a little bit of focus um, so we're trying to re-establish that. And I guess that also flows into, you know, the MAAA and how the MAAQ fits in as part of the MAAA. So, you know, all these structures were put in place many, many, many years ago. Um, you know, we've spoken about how the technology's moved on, the hobby's moved on, how people come into the hobby's moved on. And it's really, I guess, my thing was just saying, well, hang on, let's let's work out, you know, what people want and how we can support them and grow the hobby. So, you know, a really, really simple example of that is MWAQ meetings used to be on a Saturday afternoon uh, once a quarter. And you'd be sitting there on a Saturday afternoon looking out at a beautiful blue sky going, why aren't I out there flying? Um, that might be a bit of a blessing in disguise, but with COVID, you know, we've moved to online meetings. You know what? We did it on a Tuesday night. And I thought I might have got some pushback on that. And I said to the guys this week, you know, is everyone happy with this? And it was like an overwhelming unanimous, absolutely. You know, the idea in this day and age to lose a, a Saturday afternoon sitting in a, in, a, in, a, in a meeting room talking about, you know, administration of error modelling, no one wants to do that. But people are happy enough to give up their time for the benefit of the hobby on a Tuesday evening uh, in the comfort of their house doing it over a video call. So, 
you know, it's those little things that can just make such a difference about people's engagement in the in the whole administration side. Yeah, I think uh, that's the upside of this whole COVID situation is that we have, you know, there are things that we can take online and, you know, uh, for example, like you mentioned, club committee meetings, you know, you can actually hold them more often now. A lot of money has been spent on, on hiring rooms so that everybody can be in the same place. Even uh, the MAAA, they run their conference, and that's an expensive exercise to put on. It, it represents a large part of their sort of uh, their budget is having this conference. But now you can run these things online. And you know, well, the other thing that uh, that I really liked what you said was, um, which is something that I haven't heard happen in other states. It may well, I, I know it's not really happening a lot in Victoria, but where you're encouraging clubs to run events public events to showcase the hobby i love that idea i think that is such a good thing to to, to help the clubs out in in putting the events on because I've, I've always said i love events and if people can't see it see the hobby then how are they going to get interested in it and nothing beats a great public display so well done for putting that on do you find uh i know down here in in victoria a lot of people are unaware as to what you know, in our case down here, the VNAA can do for a club. And a lot of people will say, oh, they've done nothing for my club. And the first thing that I say is, well, did you ask for anything? Yeah. Are, yeah. Pe- are the clubs, you know, up in Queensland, are they seeking you out to say, look, can we have some money to pay for, you know, a new pit area or a new mower or something like that? Is it? Is, well, is it <laughs> well y- yes and no. So, so you know, part of the um, AGM is we've restructured our committee and we've we've got a public relations officer who we've always had, but we've also now got a, a development officer. So, public relations officer, I guess we wanted to go external focus on that, Facebook, social media, etc. The development officer really being there to support the clubs. And, you know, manage the grants program, educate the clubs on the grants program, help them run these events. So, you know, we've now got a structure which, you know, fits with what I, my vision for what we, we want to do. And now it's all about going out and saying to the clubs, hey, this is what we want to do. This is the resources we've got available to you. Um, you know, let's, let's, let's go forward and, and, and try and make this work. I mean, it's... You know, I don't. I don't want to be the last generation of aero modelers. You know, like I don't want to be the group that sees the hobby die. Um, you know, we've got some challenges out there, um, and we've got to adapt to survive. Um, but part of that is absolutely raising the profile, bringing people in. I mean, there's lots of people who say, "Oh, well, you know." One of the questions we had put to us was, "What's the MWAQ doing to get um, aero modeling recognised by the Queensland government as a sport?" We're not recognised by the Queensland government. Now, MAAA and the federals, that's that's a different thing. But when you talk to the Queensland government, they say, well, you guys aren't a sport. Now, you know, we could burn a lot of time and energy on that. But what I say to people is, well, what's the benefit of it? Probably not a lot. But wouldn't we have more influence if rather than being labelled a sport when people don't really think we're a sport – wouldn't it be better if we just had more members and more influence and you could actually say, hey, we've got this group of members, you know, a larger group of members than what we have today. And let's look at other things. Like let's look at what we can do with, you know, rather than necessarily saying aero modeling is a sport, well, what about its contribution to, you know, science and technology and education of, of, of kids and bringing kids into a career in aviation or teaching them other skills around technology that's transferable, you know? So, 
you know, it's very easy to get focused on one thing and lose sight of the bigger picture of what we're trying to achieve and what's important for promoting the hobby as a whole and protecting the hobby from sort of all the competition that's got out there. So, look, we've got a challenging time and, and I'm seeing Queensland, to be honest, as a bit of a, a test case for what I'd love to be able to say to everyone else sitting around the MAAA council table, this is the approach we've, 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 we've taken in Queensland it's worked or this has worked, this hasn't worked. Hey guys, how about thinking about replicating this? Um, and likewise, I take on board what, you know, what's working in other states. Uh, Tim Nolan in New South Wales has been, I, you know, my, you know, is, is doing a great job. I talk to Tim regularly. Tim's the MAAA, uh, current MAAA vice president. Um, you know, some of the states are doing really well. Other states are struggling a little bit, um, but, you know, uh, we've got to keep working at it. It's it's just, you know, you just got to keep, you know, in making small improvements and you'll get there in the end. Yeah, I'm, I think that um, I agree with you once again. I, I think that we have to do, we have to try different things, that doing the same thing is going to get us the same result. And, and you know, I've, you know, I look at some of the stuff that happens in the MAAA community and I think, why are we still doing that? You know why would we, why do we keep on doing the same thing to get the same lack of return, and then don't think about doing anything differently or getting you know working with some other organisations that can bring in different skill set to try to get get you know take things in a different path and and I I know in business that if you just keep on doing the same old same old you're not going to stand out and we are competing against a whole bunch of other hobbies whether it be cricket golf football, uh, you name it, we're all suffering from the same problem. Like I've got young kids and trying to get them out of the house. They're loving being locked down because now they can just sit in front of a screen all day long. But getting them out of the house is is, is a, a universal problem. I've, I was in the Philippines last year and a guy was telling me about the problems that he's got with his kids and trying to get them off devices. So it's not something that's isolated to Australia, but it was interesting. Uh, you were talking about the role of aero modeling in, in industry and things like that. And one of the things I've observed going to China is China is really big into uh, the aerospace area and fostering anybody that wants to get into that field. So, for example, at the China Top Show event that I go to, there were a whole bunch of university students that came. In China, they weren't paid at all, but they came for free to help out. And they were all students that were studying engineering at a, a, a university in Zhuhai in, in southern China. And a lot of them fly. They said they're members of uh, the club at the university. They fly on the oval uh, at the uni on the university grounds. And I said to them, when you finish university studying aerospace, whatever you're doing, and UAV technology and all this kind of stuff, will you have a job? He said, 100%. All of us here will have a job as soon as we finish university because the government is investing a lot of money into that space, especially that that uh, you know UAV space, and they need the skills. Even down to the point where Frank Liu, who I mentioned earlier, who um, runs the China Top Show event, he had a business manufacturing model planes, and he gave it up to go and work with his wife, who was already doing this job. But he actually goes to schools and runs programs on flying and aviation and and planes. And part of the process is to build a rubber band powered plane, and 
you go to they have then they have a competition you know amongst all the different schools in the region and you get a thousand students turning up with rubber band powered planes they all built and have now learned about aviation and you know the physics of flying and all that kind of stuff so they're investing and so the model flying in china is a growing sport and it's a lot of it's been driven through that investment china's getting bashed at the moment but there are some things that they really do quite well that you only experience once you're on the ground so you know i think that we've seen that happen in the uav space so haven't we locally with the army getting involved in stem programs and things like that um with young people and um maybe it's something that the maa and the, the wider organ maa chapters embrace a bit more but you need someone like yourself though michael that's the problem you need a leader <laughs> look there's 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 talented people in the in the organization and that and that's um, you know, like it's it's like all sort of, you know, it's pretty simple, basic business management that you, you know, if you've got talented people in the organisation, you you let them do their thing and and uh, uh, you know, be successful for you. Um, so, look, I mean, I, I got to say, I'm really feeling good about the group that we've got in the MWAQ now. Um, it's fantastic, and if I'm talking to you in 12 months' time and we haven't achieved some good things, um, then we've got no one to blame but ourselves. So, you know, the MAAA, um, you know, will, I think it's, um, it's, it's, it is evolving. Um, there's, there's always new people coming through. Um, there's probably needs to be a little bit more thought about how we, well, you know, let's be frank, there's, there's been, you know, a lot of um, angst in the past about the MAAA and other aeromodelling associations. And, you know, my view is let's stop fighting over the same group of members and people. What we need to do as all of us, you know, who are passionate aeromodellers, we need to make the pie bigger, you know, rather than fighting over a bigger slice of the same, the same small pie. So, you know, that would be my, you know, wish for for everyone involved in aero modeling administration to go out there and just focus on bringing new people into aero modeling um and you know that comes it's easy to say at the that the the national association level but it, once again i come back to it's the clubs that's the pe that's the people at the coalface so part of the MAAQ, i want to say well what mechanisms do we need to put in place to make sure that when somebody goes along to their local club somebody at the club is equipped to welcome them to train them to teach them what they need to do and understanding of you know casa rules and all those sort of things um yeah so you know there's you know there's, there's lots we can do and I, I i'm really looking forward to the coming year and sort of seeing what we can achieve um and you know the people out there everyone needs to be supportive of that concept um yeah i mean it's it's that's that's the challenge though. Like, I've had uh, I've had chats with people, and I and I agree with you wholeheartedly. That I've had chats with people, and they say, "We don't want more members. We want to keep it as is. We don't need younger people here. We're just happy." Now, I'd one president of a club say that he said, "I don't agree with that sentiment," but he said that's what they're thinking. They he said we've worked out that by the time the last one dies. This club won't be won't survive, right? So we're not fussed. And I'm like, oh well, I'm uh, you know thirty years younger than you. And when I'm in your situation, I hope that there's still a flying field for me to come to. And so I do have a vested interest in trying to keep the hobby alive. 
because I want to have that opportunity when I'm older to go to the field, meet my friends, sit around, cut the grass and do whatever. And I'm not going to have that opportunity if we don't start working on it now because we're already starting to see certain cracks opening. You know, we've seen retailers fall by the wayside. Down here in, you're lucky, you've got DA. <laughs> DA Australia is a great, great business up there and you've got a few others up there as well. But, but down here in Victoria, a lot of the really good local hobby stores just fell by the wayside. Yeah. And we've still got some at RC World and uh, Metro Hobbies and a few, but we don't, like someone rang me once and said, I need to buy some glow plugs for an engine. Do you know of any shops where I can go to? And I went, near you? No. Yeah. Like if you want to drive for an hour, maybe. And it's just, you know, and that uh, we, we, we reduce our choice. You know, we don't have as many different models that we can buy and all that oh, kind of stuff. So, absolutely. And I've, I've banged on about this. I've banged on about this for years and years and years. What, from where I sit, Michael, you, I, you, what you tell me is really refreshing to hear because you're putting some action against the sentiment of trying to improve. There's too many people running around this hobby saying, we need to get new people in the hobby. We need to get new people in the hobby. And I 100% agree with that sentiment, but then the it comes in action. What Action will drive the growth, and I'm not seeing any great changes. And I have spent a lot of time banging on about this. And when I started Flat Out RC Magazine, it was trying to approach and present the hobby in a more modern way. It was about educating clubs and giving them tips on how they can improve the environment so that they can attract more members and that kind of stuff but as you said it comes down to the clubs and the want to do that and uh, you know I'm, I'm just scared that it's going to be too late when they start to acknowledge that and even at mAAA level uh, what what is happening what can, and I'm not looking to the mAAA or the MAAQ or the VMAA or any of the other state chapters to solely carry the burden but I'd just like to see some leadership and start putting something different. Like my biggest thing is, and I'll, this is a free tip to the MAAA, and they're a great bunch of guys, Tyce Dodd, Neil Tank, they're great guys. I've got a 100% respect for them. They're really, really trying their best to do, to do what they can to help. But it's now all the different states need to get around this concept of putting the hobby in front of people, whether it be through events, whether through advertising. Advertise that you've got a hobby, you know. Because there are plenty of people out there that can fall in love with it, so we just got to. Oh, yeah, look, I mean, I'm getting oh, look, I, I, I'm getting I, and and look, you know, leadership at the top is one thing, but in reality, um, you know, every successful club uh, has one or two people in that club, and it's always comes down to one or two individuals. Sadly, unless you're in a really amazing club, who you know, when there's a newbie comes in, they latch onto them. They talk to them, they, you know, show them the gear, they, you know, teach them to fly, do whatever, you know. So a club, clubs need that, that, um, you know, desire to, to well, culture. culture, absolutely. That, that culture of welcoming people in and growing. And look, I'll, I'll be honest, you know, like, you know, there's, there's some clubs around that you just know, if you said, if somebody said to you, hey, I, I want to um, I want to learn to fly. There's certain clubs you just would not send that person to because you know the culture of that club is it's it's an established group, a clicky group, or, or whatever. Now that's that exists in any you know human endeavour. Um, you know, I had my accountant uh, ring me last week. And he said, "Oh, it's my son's birthday. I've I've uh, 
you know, bought him a model plane. And I sort of said, well, before you go down to XYZ Club, let me know and I'll come down there with you just to make sure that when you show up with said model, and I don't even know what it is he's bought, but, you know, so that you just, you at least get that first experience as a positive one. Um, because, you know, if you show up at the wrong time and the wrong person's there, you'll probably be told, hey, that's a piece of crap. You need to go buy XYZ before we'll even help you out sort of thing. So, you know, that's just the worst possible thing that could happen. And I hope that, you know, we get to a point where that never happens. Um, but, you know, it's going to come down to people on the ground. The MAAQ, the MAAA, any other association you care to name can't change people's experience at that coalface uh, unless clubs and everyone else buy into the buy into the vision. I mean, I, I, yeah. I, you sort of touched on it before that, um, you know, we've got a very small group of people who have that selfish attitude of, I don't care about the hobby as long as I can enjoy it for as long as I want to enjoy it. And I'm not worried about the next generation. Um, that's cool. You, you go over there and do your thing and, and fly your model. But in the meantime, we got to focus on, you know, getting the new people in and, and how we support them with other members who, who really do have that desire to give back. Um, you know, so look, I, I benefited from it when I first came along, um, you know, people supported me, people helped me learn how to fly, um, you know, gave me good advice and, you know, I'm still here and shelling out lots of money and supporting, you know, the people that supply the stuff to our hobby and supporting, you know, the administration of the hobby and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, we just need to make sure that everyone has that same opportunity. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. It's tough. There's, there's probably, you know, time for some new people who are keen and passionate to come in and, and uh, be given an opportunity to take the hobby forward um and you know hopefully i can sort of work as part of that well i see you and and a few others as key drivers and, and like you said it's uh you know when like when we talk about new blood coming into the system at that administration level in no way am i poo-pooing anybody that's been involved for a long period of time because anybody that gets involved is actually helping in some way shape or form and I've, I've been on committees and, and I know that after a period of time, you do need to step away from it because you can't see anything else. You know what you know and you have, you just have been too embroiled in it to actually see what else is out there. And I think that getting some new blood in, uh, you know, uh, that, that brings in different skill sets. You know, I'm a big believer that to be a great administrator of a club, say model flying club, it's not about how great you are at building a model or how well you are at flying. It's your abilities to administer the club in and the skills that you've got around that and leadership and things like that that make the big difference at, at, at club level. And fortunately, like, we've got some great clubs down in Victoria. That, you know, like, and a lot of them are in the country regions, uh, you know, out in sale down here. They have an awesome club. Like, you turn up to that club and you just want to go back. It's that good. And 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 they've developed this culture uh, around it. Now, actually, a question I want to ask whilst, whilst I've got you on the line is we've seen a lot of other um, MAAA chapters invest in land uh, to, to to have you know a state field. And down in Victoria, we've got, we've got oh, four of them. One, two, <laughs> I'm very jealous. I'm very four jealous. Of them, yes. Four of them? Is that something that, that that up in Queensland you've considered? 
I I would love to do it. Um, and you know, we we need more fields, right? The greatest threat to to aero modelling in any built-up area, whether it be Sydney, Melbourne, Southeast Queensland, is the lack of places to fly. So, you know, we've got one club uh, within 10 k's of the Brisbane CD, CBD or close to 10 k's is Tingalpa, which is a fantastic club, but it's got a 400-foot hard ceiling because it's under the flight path. That's actually my home club. That's where I learned to fly. Um, and it's great to have a club that close. But, you know, if you then start heading south to you've got one big club at Logan, one at Gold Coast, both of those clubs, their fields are under threat. Um, you know, you, you end up being in a situation where if a kid wants to learn how to fly a model airplane, mum and dad's got to drive them 50 or 60 Ks to the club and it just ain't going to happen. Um, so, yeah, securing flying sites, uh, whether that be by purchase or, you know, entering into arrangements with council is really, really, really important. Um, Sadly, we've probably missed the boat in a lot of areas of Queensland um, because, you know, real estate prices, it's not like the Sydney Basin, but it's still pretty horrendous. Um, and you've massive exp Like when I was up in Queensland last year, back in those days when we could travel <laughs> five kilometres, more than five kilometres from our house, the development up from Brisbane north up to almost like Noosa area was just yeah, phenomenal. Yeah. Like it's just so much happening in that little little sector up there that it's um a friend of mine actually who's originally from Queensland, I was talking to him the other day and he wants to buy another place up at the Sunshine Coast because he wants to retire up there, I'm sure. And uh he said, Oh, I made an offer on a place, but I missed out by a hundred thousand dollars. And I'm like, Well, you missed out by a fair bit. Yeah. And he goes, said the property prices are, are really yeah. going And look, that's that's the problem we face. I mean, to be to be honest, the MAAQ uh, in recent years gave back a lot of money to clubs in the way of grants. And look, I understand that. We we had money in the bank. There was no real obvious thing to do with it other than maybe buy land. But, you know, for whatever reason, that wasn't on the agenda at the time. And money was, was given back to the clubs. Now, the clubs benefited from that um, by improving their facilities, buying mowers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I guess... Easy for me to say in hindsight, having come in after that point in time, I sort of say, well, what did we achieve in terms of growth of membership? You know, what did we, and the reality is our membership has, you know, stayed stayed um, stable or slightly declined. So I, I, as part of the grants program we're now running is it's really, you've got to be focused on doing something with that money to promote and bring new members in. Um, so look, we, we, look the financials are out there to all of our members we don't really have you know money in the bank to go and enable us to buy you know five hundred thousand dollars worth of land somewhere um you know if the mAAA has a has a land um um you know a, a, a portion of money put together to acquire land um i'd happily hit them up for that but likewise you know we'd then need to be able to supplement that and, and develop it so look um I don't want to be too critical of anyone in the past. I wasn't at the table when decisions were made, but I suspect there's also a certain level of, well, if I'm not going to go there and use it and fly, then why should my money go towards funding that sort of facility? So, you know, I think we need to be, look at bigger picture. We need to, as a, as a, as, as a modeler say, well, you know, I might not fly there, but if that secures the future of the hobby and enables us to run big events that attract people to the hobby, I'll benefit in some way. 
Um, so look, I'm I'm not discounting that, but it's not in the um, short to medium terms for the MAAQ. Um, if somebody comes up with a proposal, I would love to look at it. But um, yeah, the numbers have obviously got to stack up as well. Yeah, we're, we're really fortunate down here. We've got sort of uh, covered all points of the compass in a kind of way as far as access to a field. But like you said, none of them are that close. But you know, there's one club down here, the Doncaster Club, which is right in suburbia. It's a very small field. But that club has fostered so many champions because it was just so accessible to people to get to. Like kids would ride their bikes to the field and those days are over. Those days are over. We can't really do that. But down in Victoria, we're not. We're going to be locked up for years the way we're going. I was going to say, I'm a member of the you know Tinkham Bay Model Club. So it's two and a half hours out of Brisbane. I joined up there because it's a great little club. It's one of the clubs that do things fantastically well um, in terms of, you know, running events and bringing people in, but it's a two and a half hour drive. Um, I love going there and camping for the weekend and flying with mates. But, you know, my point is, is that it's very hard for me to say to somebody who, oh, you want to give the hobby a go? Oh, come for a drive for two and a half hours up the road. You know, like it's, it's yeah, you yeah. need local, you need, yeah. And that's, I guess the flip side is that's, that's unfortunately why people end up in parks. So, you know, we need to convince local councils that, you know, having designated aero modeling clubs is uh, is really you know in their interest as much as ours well i've driven past the tinkan bay club when i when it was up in queensland last year on the way to the tinkan bay yacht club for a sailing oh, race and uh i must I, I saw it and i didn't have to, and the, the problem i had was i got crook i had a tummy bug from some lamb that i ate at the at the restaurant and but I was going to go to the flying field because there was an event on or something that day, and um, the weather wasn't great. But anyway, I, I missed out. The, the strip was nice and green, which brings me to a question I want to ask because down here in Victoria, we you know we're in the midst of freezing weather at the moment. Even though today wasn't too bad, but um, what's it like flying in Queensland in the heat? <laughs> Like, can you can you fly all year round? We we can fly all year round. I mean, uh, January and uh, and and look, I'm I'm I grew up in North Queensland. I grew up in Townsville. Like, I can't imagine what the guys. Are. I I don't think they they bother with their models in uh, in in December and January in uh, in far North Queensland too much. But um, look, in 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 the southeast corner, I got to say it's pretty good. I mean, this time of year it gets a little bit windy. Maybe the westerlies come through, but. You know, I reckon April, May, June, um, most amazing time to go out there, stand in the sun, you know, probably 22, 23 degrees, sun at your back. It's yeah. don't, uh, absolutely don't fantastic. <laughs> That's, it's, it's funny. It's, it's interesting. You get onto websites like RC Traders, have a look at, you know, what's for sale. And there's a lot of activity in the Queensland area. And it'd be interesting to see what the numbers are like Comparing states and how many how many era modelers you know registered era modelers we've got in each state to see how Queensland stack up, but well, I don't know. I don't know if we've got any data to have a look pretty, at. That. Pretty but, sure uh, we've got some data on that, but uh, we, we do all right. We do all right. So we've got about 62, 63 clubs in Queensland. I think the New South Wales guys have got over eighty, but um, yeah, look, it's 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 a great place to be an aero modeler. Um, you know, I live in Brisbane, about three or four uh, four or five k's from the city. I'm I'm a member of five clubs, you know, so that that you know, five. so you know, um, we've got a few options. It's not too bad, but you know, we've got to we've got to look after that as well. You know, I mean, noise is always an issue at at suburban, um, you know, 
clubs that are got some population around them. Um, you know, you're always sort of on your toes looking for the the next, you know, uh, housing development that's going to sort of impact on you or, um, you know, land resumption for whatever reason. So, um, yeah, protecting our fields and, and educating local councils on, you know, what we do and the value that aero modelling brings to the community, whether it be financial, whether it be, you know, mental health or all those things. I think that's, that's really something, uh, you know, the MAAQ and the associations and the clubs you know, need to need to put out there. Yeah. Well, the how often are you getting out flying nowadays? Well, um, look, I'd, I'd love to say every week, um, but it's probably not quite uh, true. Um, so it's one of those things that varies with with work and weather and everything like that. But, yeah, look, I'd, I'd like to say I try to get out every week for a fly. Um, and, uh, look, often, you know, I, I sort of enjoy uh, – IMAC events, pattern events, uh, scale events. So, you know, try and get out one week maybe at the club, and uh, probably another weekend a month I'll be uh, I'll be away at an event. So, um, and like I, I like to also just get around to as many clubs as I can with uh, wearing my MWAQ president hat. So, um, yeah, spend a lot of time at flying clubs. A lot of the time talking, not so much time flying. But uh, that was part of the thing of. Uh, Stepping back from ASWA president was to focus on the uh, the flying, and then all of a sudden I've ended up as MWAQ president. But um, yeah, I I, uh, <laughs> I do make sure I'm I'm not one of the uh, one of the administrators who uh, who doesn't touch the transmitter. So I uh, I try and fly as much nah, as possible. You got to keep flying. Now, uh, what's your go-to model at the moment? Um, good question. Got a couple of them on the on the go at the moment. So I've just finished off a. Uh, a new iMac model. So after the uh, national championships, I, I uh, the, the, the Asia Pacific championships, I actually sold off the the model that Sasha flew there. Um, so that went down to to Melbourne. So that'll take to the skies in Victoria very soon after uh, after lockdown, I'm sure. And I got a uh, a new 125 inch Extreme Flight laser. Um, so I uh, put a few photos up on Facebook. Some people might have seen that. So that's now trimmed out and ready to uh ready for battle uh how do you find that how do you find moving from the the composite plane to the balsa um look not you know like that's they're, they're both absolute top quality planes um you know the uh the composite plane was probably oh six years old and it still looked as good as it did you know the day you sort of maidened it um you know the the uh, covered planes probably don't uh, have the longevity, but that said, look, the top guys flying competitive aerobatics in the uh, US, they're not using ARFs admittedly, but they're using Bolter, um, foam core wing, Bolter, sheeted, uh, built up models. Um, you know, so just, it comes down to wing loading, it comes down to, uh, you know, and, and weight in certain places, you know, so the guys like or light wings and things like that. So, you know, I'm loving this extreme flight. Um, they make fantastic models. You just look at the inside of the, uh, the latest models that extreme flight are making. They're all carbon laminated. They're beautiful, beautiful um, models. So um, you're doing an awesome job, extreme flight. I'm going to get, I've got a, I've got Chris Hinson from extreme flight on the list of people to talk to, which uh, I will get him. I will get him. If I know him. He'll, he'll do it. I'll just sort of <laughs> reach out to him and find a suitable time. Damn it. The time difference is crazy. The time difference for the US isn't too, too bad to do recordings. The, I'm having problems with Europe. 
at the moment. The Europeans are just our, our top Well, you can imagine what it's like on the IMAC committee doing a, a board meeting with people from uh, Europe. Oh. And I, I get lucky. They normally schedule about nine o'clock uh, New York time. So it's lunchtime for me the, the day before, the, sorry, the day after. Uh, but I think the guys in Europe yeah. and Israel are sort of getting up in the middle of the night to do these, uh, <laughs> do these teleconferences. <laughs> There you go. That'd make me want to move. Uh, I, I can't. I've thought about it. Should I wake up in the middle of the night and do a podcast recording? I'm thinking well, that could be a bit difficult because I actually record them in my bedroom because it, th- there's no echo in the room. It's, it's quite a clean room, but my wife's going to be sleeping whilst I'm talking. I think she's going to appreciate <laughs> it. But anyway, might be better than my snoring. Now, to finish off, what has been your favourite all-time model that you've owned? Oh, look, I, I reckon it's my Compaf Marchetti. So it's a bright orange um, 1960s military trainer. So it's about a 108-inch oh, or something like that. So 100cc model. Is that the Yeah, 100cc. Yeah. and um, They're beautiful, those Marchettis. It's, it's, it's a great model for air shows because you put a big 2810 prop on it and and let it rip. And um, I know it's, you know, like it's it's not something I fly regularly at, at my local club, for example, but when you're at an air show, people just love the noise. So, um, yeah, it's it's a great plane just to uh, do nice classic uh, scale aerobatics, you know, sort of loops and rolls and big half cubans and just let that rip prop, uh, prop rip. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, got to be one of my... Uh, Oh look, I, I sort of touch wood. Nothing, nothing bad happens to it. But if anything ever did happen to it, I'd be unfortunately having to shell out and buy another one because I don't think I could live without it. Oh, uh, they, they, you, you rarely see them. Um, Glen Orchard down here in Victoria, yep, yep, has one, and I've taken a lot of photographs. And it's one of those planes that when you take a photograph of Marchetti, every single one of the shots looks good. It, it's, it's, it's like Cessnas, Cess, big Cessnas. You can't take a bad shot of a, of a Cessna. And it's the same with this Marchetti. It's got so much presence in the air. And it's almost yep. this blend of a modern look with a bit of hint of old kind of thing. It's a bit aerobatic and it's it's scale and all that, but it's got the size to it as well. So I'll tell you what, I'd love to own one of those Marchettis as well. You've got the, 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 the full retract system in it, of course. Full retracts. You bring it in on flap and it just comes in at walking pace and, yeah, sinks beautifully, lands lands beautifully. So, no, I, I really do love it. Look how excited we get talking about a model. It's funny how there's this whole <laughs> there's this whole other sense that comes into aero modeling when we talk about something like that. Like I've got the images of this Marchetti that I've seen with Glen Orchard's Marchetti and and how how great it is to see fly every single time and how excited you get seeing a plane like that fly, which is uh, I don't know where it's well, Glenn's, Glenn's got the white scale scheme. Mine's mine's bright yeah. orange, the Italian military uh trainer scheme. So it uh, on a beautiful blue sky. The only thing I uh, one day I might get around to putting smoke on it, but uh haven't yeah. done that yet. But no, it's a it's a great model. Excellent. Well, Michael, you've been a legend and really appreciate all the effort that you've made. You know, it, it, being on the administration side of the hobby is really not something that is for everybody, but and and it's a hard it's a thankless job more often than not. But it takes people like yourself to stand up and to drive things forward. So for that, I say thank you very much. And I'm sure there's plenty of Queenslanders out there that will uh, join me in saying well done and uh, keep on fighting the good fight. Thanks, Andrew, mate. Uh, really appreciate that uh, those words, mate. I um, thanks for your time and yeah. Hopefully we can uh, chat again and uh, maybe in 12 months' time we'll have uh, some more good news stories about what we've managed to achieve and, yeah, looking forward to it. I'll take you up on that offer. Thanks, mate. I'll see you in 12 months. Take care.
Well, thanks to Michael Hobson for joining me on the podcast. It was great to have a chat and uh, really find out what he's working on and learn more about his hobby as well, which um, I wasn't aware of all the details, but now we all are. So a big thank you to Michael. Now, I want to move on and have a bit of a chat about the state of our our hobby in the area of marketing communications, which, because I've been thinking a lot about it recently, uh, you know, I started dabbling in the area of the marketing side of the hobby when I started the Flat Out RC brand initially as a magazine and now moving into more of the digital realm with the uh, YouTube channel and the podcast and things like that. And, uh, but I was, I was, you know, I've got a bit of time on my hands at the moment due to the whole uh, COVID situation and really giving it some thought about where do we sit at the moment, traditional versus online and what's been going on. And so I started writing a bit of the pros and cons or more the pros of, uh, of the traditional marketing and the digital marketing because I've actually got into reading old magazines. Uh, you know, last, During the last week, I've been reading some gliding magazines that I bought in 1995 and just seeing you know, what was going on in the scene and how things were being communicated, and and of course nowadays in the in the digital world and the internet world that we live in, there's a lot of information flowing. But the question is, is it good? So let's just have a look. Traditional. What I found with traditional uh, marketing. When I mean traditional park marketing, I'm talking about pre-online internet stuff, and we predominantly had magazines stuff like that. We had a very focused audience. You know that people went to the magazines for their information. So there's a lot of attention placed on those formats uh and it, it was a one-way communication model you know it's not like the digital where you can have comment fields and people can say whatever they want kind of thing so it was very one way which sometimes not great but uh it was there um the other thing is what i find in those traditional uh models we had a lot of industry support the industry didn't have as many options as far as marketing. And so if they wanted to spread their wares about their products, they'd go to the magazines, which meant that the magazines were quite vibrant. They can, you know, from producing a magazine, I know that what money can help you do. It means you can spend more time, pay more attention when you've got money coming in. If you don't have money coming in, then you have to find out how to make money in other areas to subsidize the lack of money that you're making in say producing the, the content and the hobby and, um, in, uh, in, in a magazine. So you had this very, very concentrated focus. And, you know, you go way back into the 60s when radio control gear started to come out. 90% of the magazines were actually ads. But people wanted that because it was so new. There was so much happening. They wanted to know what was going on. And so you had all these ads so that people knew what radio systems were out there and all that kind of stuff. And it was changing rapidly too. There was new technology coming in that era around the radio control era um, as well. Um, and generally, when we talk about traditional uh, media outlets and marketing outlets. They were. It was all about. It was a finan- There was a financial model backing it. We sold advertising, uh, which helped fund everything. The cons of it was, it was expensive, so you needed to have that industry support to keep things going because you know you had to pay for the journalists and the photographers and the printing and all that kind of the distribution expenses as well. You know, postage of subscriptions and distribution to news agents and all that kind of stuff it was limited that only you know you had to pay money to get the content uh so the reach could be impacted as a result of that uh it was complex to produce uh you know because a lot more things need to be done to get get the message out there uh and yeah we talked about this one-way communication where 
you know, there was no to and fro banter. So you were just always guessing what people wanted to read. And that's sort of the pitfalls. But then we move into the online realm. We have a look at what's going on. Now we have multiple communication channels. And I'll just share a bit of my experiences, uh, you know, dealing with it and uh, whether we're better off or not. And just my opinion on that. So we have multiple platforms to play on in a digital sense. So we have forums, RC groups, flying giants, to name a couple of them. We have Facebook and Instagram. Uh, not really LinkedIn's not used that much in the hobby. Twitter, uh, Snapchat, you name it. There's different channels that people can populate. Then we've got YouTube, so now we can put videos up there as well. So we've got a lot more channels to get information out and the barriers to get information out are very, very low, which has meant that anybody can become a content creator in a kind of way, that anybody that likes flying model airplanes and loves playing with a camera, for example, is now a content creator and can put stuff out there and it's free. There's no there's no friction really to put something out there. Uh, so we've got a lot of content flowing. Um, generally, the content is unstructured, uh, that people are just producing stuff because they want to share their experience on something. Uh, but what we find is that those that are a bit more structured probably get a bit more of a following. The industry support has changed that the industry has had the same access to, to, to these channels as everybody else. And so um, even from my own experience, what I realized is that when Airborne Magazine here in Australia fell over and I started Flat Out RC Magazine, and that's a story for another day on, on what happened behind that. Maybe the next episode I'll tell you the story about Airborne and Flat Out RC. But uh, when that fell over and I started to contact some of the advertisers that were traditionally advertising in Airborne, 90% of them opted to, opted out of advertising. Uh, they claimed that they were going to do it themselves and that they weren't getting a great return on, on advertising anymore, but they were going to go and do their own thing. The reality is that most uh, hobby businesses and industry players out there don't do their own thing. They've been terrible at, at marketing themselves because they've been too busy keeping up with their own business um, or trying to, trying to stay afloat. So they cut their marketing expenditure rapidly and they haven't really optimized the opportunity that digital has given them. So um, in the industry went and started some started doing their own thing, but their own thing meant that they were just f trying to flog the products that they were selling, not necessarily providing other information about building techniques or any other things that go around the hobby. You know, we're not all in the market to buy stuff. Some of us are building, fixing, focusing on flying, and so the content that came from the industry side of thing was very. It was basically advertising. That's all they were doing is pushing out advertising in various different forms. It just was advertising. So um, to access information from knowledgeable people about building things like that, we've now gone back to really word of mouth is really strong, that we're, we're, we're connecting with our peers probably in a better way and sharing information that way. Uh, forums a little bit, but I, I think that forums have declined a lot. And, and when I jump onto forums and have a look at forums, I notice that the participation is really not that great. It's a handful of people that, that, that keep on going to them, but... Generally, there's not a lot of activity in the forum realm. I still think that they play a great role, especially for when you're researching models, just to hear from other people's experiences. But here in Australia, we're not supporting the forums as well as we used to. Uh, so Facebook seems to be a great dominant player, but then it's just ad hoc rambling. Uh, there's not a lot, a lot of structure to it. Um, and it's every man for himself in a, in a kind of way when it comes to promoting the hobby. Even when we look at the associations and, um, you know, I have 
you know, being critical of the marketing activity that some of the associations around the world are doing and lack of. And here in Australia, the same case. Yes, they put content out there, but it's really, I don't think it's hitting the mark. Um, you know, it's just going through the motions almost. There's not a lot of creativity in it. So and even when it comes to some of the digital content, we're just a lot of us are just trying to do the same kind of thing. Um, and I've always tried to do something different. I had a different approach with my magazine, with this podcast. You know, it's not necessarily a podcast about sharing knowledge about building things like that indirectly sometimes it's more about just hearing from people from in our hobby and, and learning about them and and telling the tale so you know taking it sort of a different approach i've got i've got i'm working on a a new guest that's coming up that's really strong in that area of building videos about tips and tricks uh and which i love um and good on him for doing that as well but we'll have a chat with and i'll release i'll release the name shortly of who that is just get it get it in the can first make sure we've got it all signed sealed and delivered so you can probably tell by the way that I'm talking that even though we've moved to an era of digital and there's a lot more opportunities for us to share information, I don't necessarily think that it's any better than what it was in the past. I think that we are all over the place. And even from my perspective, trying to create content on digital platforms, I'm always trying to find a different angle and, and, and understand what the market wants as far as content. But there are a couple of things that, that really impact your ability to produce the content that you'd like to produce, and that is time and money. That the more time that I spend, this is in my situation, but in my situation, the more money time I spend on the hobbies, the less that I'm actually making money because I don't get paid anything for doing this. And uh, not that I've sought money at this point in time. You know, If you want to sponsor this, this, this podcast, go for your life, but I haven't proactively gone out there to seek sponsors yet because I'm just sort of building up the audience has been my main focus on, on producing the content weekly. But I can't physically spend more time on producing content because that takes away from my business, which makes me money, which feeds my family and pays my mortgages. And because there is that lack of revenue model with the content, because there are, you know, with low barriers to entry, that means there's lots of people that can do it, which means businesses can't support everybody. So it's very, very difficult to actually make any money now out of promoting the hobby. Literally extremely difficult for anybody. Let's just put it this way. Nobody can earn a living just on promoting the hobby. It, it, it's just not there. Uh, they're not, the industry is not spending enough money to be able to finance anybody to do it unless you're employed as a marketing person for Horizon Hobby. But as I said, the industry is producing content that's solely based on promoting their products at their manufacturing, which is what they need to do. But they're not nurturing us a lot. They're not improving our skill base in a kind of way. And we talk a lot about you know losing that ability to, to build and things like that and losing the skills. Well, who is sharing that knowledge? So... Are we better off? I don't think so. You know, when I used to have uh, the magazine and had um, Brian Winch, who, who passed away last year, talking about model engines and the reviews that he could do on an engine, that nobody is pulling apart an engine and reviewing the internals of it to tell us what, it's, what the build quality is like and whether the design's any good like Brian Winch used to do. And the reason why Brian Winch would spend the time is, one, he had the passion for it, and two, he would often either get given the, the the engine to review and get to keep it, which means he could sell it, which he, he did. Um, I paid him to write articles as well. So there was a revenue model there. So advertisers would pay money and I'd use that money to pay Brian and pay for the printing and that kind of stuff. How much money did I make out of a magazine? Hardly anything. 
literally most magazines ran at a loss, some slight uh, profit, but they, they weren't making a lot of money. If I had to actually pay myself a wage for the time that I put into it, I, I would have made probably a five to $6,000 loss in every magazine that I produced. And so it's getting harder and harder because of these barriers. So where do we go? I think that the future is still just going to ramble on. I think that the people that can produce decent content will get an audience. I think that if we want to change the situation and have more meaningful content, something where is truly valuable, then the industry need to take take a different approach. They need to stop thinking that it's just about advertising their product and putting it on Facebook, sharing it to their minimal audience and maybe looking at um, supporting other content creators and their nurturing of the hobby, which indirectly supports the industry. And that was, I suppose, one of the most disappointing things about my experience of Flat Out RC magazine was the lack of industry support, that they were so negative towards the whole concept of advertising and supporting an Australian-based magazine. And it's gone now. I, I shut it up because my attitude was, if they don't want to support it, well, why should I support it? And they're, they're the only people that are making money and making a living out of out of the hobbies is the industry. And so you'd think that they'd want to keep their brands in front of an audience um, and support an initiative that's keeping the, the, the hobby vibrant. But it's we're not in that era anymore. You know, I can't complain too much. It's just the era's moved on. So I continue to produce a podcast, continue to produce some YouTube videos now and again when I can get out and do it. Um, but would I like to do more? Of course I'd love to do more. But what do you want me to do? Lose my livelihood or lose my house? Might be able to feed my family on the back of uh, of producing content that people might enjoy. So, all in all, uh, food for thought. Uh, my opinion of where we're at. I don't think it's great. Uh, every week I try to bring you some news. Well, the industry ain't sharing the news. People aren't sharing the news. It's a bit all fragmented. So I hunt around for stuff, but it's just really hard to find any news. But anyway, we'll keep it out there. I, I don't know what's going to happen once we get over this whole COVID situation. The news will be coming in. We'll have lots of events and things like that, which I love. So I don't want to sound too depressing, but I uh, don't know where this is all going, but we'll just keep on rolling with the punches. About to leave. Already packing. Come with me. I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. Another big long episode of the Flat Out RC podcast, and I hope you enjoyed it. A big thank you to uh, Michael Hobson for joining me. I really enjoyed the chat with Michael. Hope you did as well. Now, don't forget to subscribe to the Flat Out RC podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our social media platforms Instagram, YouTube and uh what's the other one instagram instagram facebook and youtube are the big big ones if if you've listened to my rant about the state of the hobby and not making any money out of the marketing and all that the only revenue model is uh youtube so subscribe to my youtube channel even though i'm not monetized i need to get more subscribers so flat out rc on youtube jump on board with it go and have a look there's about 60 videos that i put up there over the years, uh, they're not really dating. Go and have a look at some of the China trips. or well, the big video, the big movie, the big feature film, Life in High Rates, that uh, I shot in China in 2018. So thanks once again for joining me. Have another great week. Uh, good guests coming up in the next few weeks. We're still rolling along, all, spending all week trying to secure guests, and we're getting there. So hope you're enjoying it. Hope you're enjoying your era modeling and I'll be back next week. Thanks a lot. Take my-